to the Marathon Medic Podcast. I'm your host, Amy Bolsh, a doctor and running coach with an interest in sports and exercise medicine. These podcast episodes are all about physical activity, exercise and health, and today I'm joined by Alex Hutchinson, an author and journalist based in Toronto. Alex writes regularly for the Sweat Science column in Outside Magazine, where he focuses on the science behind endurance exercise. He's also the author of the book Endure, Mind, Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. On this podcast, we're discussing Kipchoge's Sub-2 Marathon, the role of the mind in performance sports, the pros and cons of all the training metrics we can now get from our watches, and different training methods, including heart rate training and polarised training. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me today on the podcast. Uh, Thanks, Amy. It's great to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Perfect. So um, I've read your book actually quite a few times. It's called Endure and it explores what it takes to push the body to its limits and also what those those limits might be. But for those uh, who haven't read your book and, and don't know too much about you, would you mind just introducing yourself? Sure. I'm a, uh, My name is Alex Hutchinson. I'm a, uh, a science journalist who focuses on endurance sports for the most part. So I read a column for Outside Magazine called Sweat Science, where the the goal is to look at what peer-reviewed literature tells us about, uh, you know, endurance, health, training, fitness, all those sorts of things. Um, with the knowledge that, that you know, peer-reviewed research doesn't give us all the answers we might need to, to make training decisions, but it's one source of information. Um, yeah, and I, I write for a few other publications too. I, I write for, in, in Canada, I write for the Globe and Mail and Canadian Running Magazine, but all, all under this theme of, of the science of endurance, basically. Um, my background is as a runner. I, I was a middle distance runner uh, for the Canadian team for a while, a 1500 meter runner and cross country runner. Uh, I still run. I just ran a 8K road race last weekend. So I'm having trouble walking these days. It's a very hilly, very hilly race. And I hadn't, uh, hadn't done enough hill preparation. What else? Yeah, I live in Toronto. I think that's th- 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 those are the main bases. <laughs> the highlights. Um, and in terms of your running, obviously you ran at a really competitive level. So what did it take? for you to reach that competitive level? Um, I'm assuming you were probably early 20s at that point. Yeah. I mean, I guess if I had to pick my single best lifetime performance, it was when I was 21. Um, although I continued training at a high level for another <laughs> decade. So um, you know, I guess maybe I should have quit while I was ahead. But um, yeah, running was the most important thing in my life from from about the age of 15, let's say onwards. I started training with a, with an athletics club, a local a local club here in Toronto, uh, the University of Toronto Track Club. When I was 15, and I mean, obviously, I was do, I was never like a, f- a full time professional athlete. I was going to school at the time, uh, you know, throughout most of the time that I was competing. Um, but it really was my my top priority. And it's, I mean, this is I'm sort of meandering off the point here. But what's interesting is I would say I, I my track career went till I was 28. That was my final. I, I ran in the 2004 Olympic trials and then. Um, kind of moved on, and, and that's when I started journalism. And journalism at that point, journalism became the most important thing in my life. And I continued training because I enjoy training, and I, you know, most of my friends were were training, and um, it, you know, it was a great social atmosphere, and I enjoyed racing. And so, for instance, when I was thirty-one, I was probably doing as much mileage as I was when I was twenty-one, doing the same number of hard workouts. Um, but there was a difference. between Somehow, and I've I've really struggled to put my finger on it between running, you know, 100k a week, where it's the most important thing in your life, and running 100k a week, where it's maybe the third most important thing in your life. And I, it's hard to know what all the differences were, just whether I, you know, whether it's the ancillary training things or whether just caring about it a little bit more. 
but um, yeah, there was a period in my life when it was the most important thing. And that's, that's when I ran my fastest times. I suppose we, we talk a lot about as well cognitive load and I guess stresses as well and how that kind of contributes to our training load. So I think, as you said, when it's not the most important thing, all of those other aspects of our life start creeping in and adding to our fatigue and maybe we don't have the optimal recovery that we had when it was number one. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the truth is training hard and competing hard requires you to really, you know, scrape the bottom of the barrel in terms of your, your cognitive and emotional resources. And I think part of it was, you know, what I found is when I was racing at my hardest, sometimes, you know, sometimes after big races, I was just absolutely wrecked to the point, you know, where I could barely walk around for for the rest of the day. And in that sort of second stage of my career where I was running and training hard, you know, running at a reasonably high level, I actually ran at the World Cross Country Championships when I was, I think, 32 or something like that. So I was still running at a high level, but I would, I would cross the finish line of races um, you know, I can, I cared, I, I, you know, I was still trying, but I'd cross the finish line of races and say, oh, well, that's that. And I would walk on and I'd be recovered quite quickly. Whereas, and, and, and whereas earlier, you know, when I was younger, I would cross the finish line of races and sometimes, and just be absolutely wrecked. And I could never find that kind of sixth gear where I was willing to just give absolutely everything. And I, I think that's, you know, it goes back to this idea of, um, you know, there are other things that I was caring about and I was, I was spending some of that emotional energy on, pitching magazines and trying to get, you know, trying to write the best magazine article possible or trying, you know, trying to do research on a, on a book or whatever. And so that the, those, those same resources weren't, weren't available. And I, I have no regrets, like those other things in life are also important, but, but yeah, I somehow, yeah, I lost a gear and I would say now I'm like, I'm 46 now. And now it's like, it's no longer, where's that sixth gear? I'm like, where's that fourth gear? I used to be able to find, and it's not just about speed. It's about, it's about even independent of how fast you're going. It's about how hard you're pushing. And I don't think I can push myself as hard as I used to be able to. And do you still have that competitive edge? Because I'm assuming you never lose that. So you said you did your 8K the other other week. Are you still, do you still have that drive that you had when you were at the Olympic trials or has that aspect changed as well? It's definitely changed, but not, it's, it certainly hasn't gone away. And, and, you know, this, this was a local um, you know, road race a couple kilometers from my house, not, not, not a big deal, but I was still obsessing over, you know, in the week leading up to it and, and maybe not losing sleep, but, but thinking about it all the time and, and, you know, daydreaming about it and um, envisioning scenarios and worried about, you know, who else was running in the master's division and could I take them and how was their, you know, look, I'll be, I'll admit I was looking, looking at the other entrants in the race who were over 40, looking up their results from the previous few months to see how fit they were and calculating my own chances of, of beating them. So yeah, you know, it never, it never goes away. It, 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 it changes a little bit and, and, you know, you can, and it still waxes and wanes in my life. There are times when I'm more interested in, uh, trying to get fit and race that, and, and times when I'm less, but it, it never goes away completely, at least for me. Yeah, I, I think I feel similarly. Obviously, I have never raced to, to your level, but I think I, I agree that different things take priority. And sometimes running is, is number one, and sometimes it's you know much further down the list. Um, someone that neither of us will ever beat and no one in the world will beat is Kipchoge. And I just wanted to um, touch on his story a little bit. So weaved through your book is, is the attempt for that sub two-hour marathon, which he eventually achieved in 2019. Um, and I'm sure many of us can remember watching that moment. When you were writing the book, and obviously you didn't know that that was going to happen, and you were doing all the research around the planning behind this and the training and every everything that was being thrown into this project, did you ever think it was going to be possible for a human to break that two-hour mark for the marathon? I, I certainly didn't expect it within my professional lifetime. Um, you know, the truth is, 
I wrote the book. I was nearly finished the draft, the first draft of the book, when when I first heard about Nike's Breaking Two project in in late 2016, and then they they ran the first attempt, uh, the Breaking Two attempt in Italy in May of 2017. I had literally finished a draft of the book and and with, with no with no concept that that sub two hour marathon was anything that was possible. In fact, I had written a a 10 page you know investigation quote unquote for runners world a few years earlier in 2014 on the prospects for a sub 2 hour marathon and i had predicted that it would was possible and would happen in 2075 so i it wasn't on my radar and then it suddenly came on my radar when this breaking 2 project was announced and it just was clear that this this attempt to sort of harness every possible angle to make a human being run a little faster in pursuit of a two-hour marathon, just to really nicely encapsulated everything that I was interested in in writing the the book, and so it's like, oh no, do I have to rewrite the whole book? How am I, you know, because you know, I had this amazing access to to Elliot Kipchoge and some uh, so many of the scientists, and so that's how it ends up interwoven into the book. Is that I went back and shoved in chunks of the story uh, at intervals around the chapters that I had already written. And I, I will say, you know, patting myself on the back, I, I think that that structure works, but it was definitely not like, I, I, it wasn't a planned thing. It was like, oh, wow, right at the end of my book, this amazing opportunity to to, to see a sort of real life, um, unlimited budget experiment in trying to push the limits of human endurance sort of dropped into my lap and I had I had to make use of it. It, it definitely worked. I had no idea that that was the way around that happened. It's, it feels like the book flows so well with that all kind of going on in the background. <laughs> <laughs> a few, that's, that, that's good to hear. But yeah, I mean, to answer your, sorry, your actual question was that I think it was going to happen. And, and and the answer was no, I didn't. Although once the breaking, once the, once the elements of the breaking two project became clear, this, the fact that there were these new shoes with carbon fiber plates that made a measurable difference to, to, Running economy, and then the 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 various other ways. You know, the drafting was another big piece. The fact they were going to have the runners run behind a sort of arrowhead formation of other runners. You start to do the math, and then you realize, oh, if he is in two o three shape, you know, and the, and the record at the time was two o two fifty seven, and if the shoes give him a minute, and if the drafting gives him a minute, and if all the other stuff put together gives him a minute. Then you're in the ballpark. And so then by the time he, I still didn't think he was going to do it when in 2017, which he didn't, but although he came extremely close, but once he ran two flat 25, uh, in May of 20, 2017, I think everything had changed. Once he did that, you knew that 25 seconds wasn't going to be a barrier that was going to stand forever, that someone would come along. And, it, and, and of course it turned out to be Kipchoge himself would come along and take those last 25 seconds. You've touched on a few things there that they did, and obviously there was a huge amount of science and money behind this project. You've kind of touched on the things that you think contributed the most, so the shoes, the drafting. What is it about Kipchoge himself that you think made him the person? Um, because I think early on in the book, you, you talk about the, the way that they're recruiting people into this project and choosing who will be the one to, to attempt this. So what is it about Kipchoge that makes him so special? Yeah, I mean the, the the selection process was interesting. They they because Nike has a pretty deep uh worldwide roster of a lot of the greatest athletes in the world. They have the biggest stable of of top athletes. And so they brought uh, you know a large number of them into labs either in the states or in Britain uh and ran a bunch of tests on them including you know, lab tests and then also taking them to the track and having them them run it to our marathon pace to see how their bodies responded to that. So they had, you know, the greatest possible amount of physiological 
data to pick the future sub two marathon runner. And Kipchoge was not at the top of that list. He was nowhere near the top of that. Well, that's probably a little too strong, but he was not, he, it wasn't like the lab data said, this is your guy. He's, he's going to do it. But they, he was the reigning Olympic champion. So they knew he was, uh, um, they, they decided to overlook the numbers and look at the sort of quote unquote intangibles and say, Kipchoge has something. Now, the, you can tell the story in different ways, right? Like, is there something physiologically about Elliot Kipchoge that just doesn't show up in a VO2 max test or in a lactate threshold test or, or any of those things? Or is it the the sort of more interesting narrative that Elliot Kipchoge is tougher and knows how to dig deeper than than any of his peers? And I, you know, I don't think we know the answer to that question. I certainly, um, I certainly like the the narrative that he's that he's just a, a consummate racer, and it and it's and he is very very different from most of his his peers and and rivals. He, um, uh, let me be careful how I say this. I, I was going to say he's very very thoughtful, and I don't want to imply that other marathoners aren't thoughtful, but he's sort of noticeably a deep thinker, someone who thinks carefully, not just about you know how many miles should I run tomorrow, but like how am I going to build my mindset so that I'm ready to take on this challenge? And he was very, very like, you know, clear about this. So six months before the first breaking two race, when it was the first time I'd met him and he, he was, he had just run a half marathon a little bit under an hour. So he was, it was sort of like, okay, in in six months or in five months, I think it was, how are you going to run twice as far uh, at the same pace? Like, how are you going to change your training to do that? And his answer was, was like, I'm not going to change my training. There's nothing to do with my training. I'm going to change my mind, you know, it's all about building the belief that it's possible. And he, you know, he was reading all sorts of motivational self-help books, like uh, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and things like that. And that, to me, as a as a sort of science guy, was like, wow, that seems like a strange plan. You're not going to, you know, the training is going to be the same, but you're going to read some motivational books. Um, but he he really clearly has a belief that he has a belief that belief is important, that self belief is important. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, the, the Nike, from all their potential athletes, they picked three runners and all of them had a, a, a excellent credentials. And two of them were out of the picture by around halfway uh, when they, at this breaking two race, they, they couldn't maintain the pace. Kept, so it's not just that, you know, you, you can take the drafting and the shoes and all the other science that Nike comes up with. You can't just take take any old runner, dump them into this system and they're going to run a two hour marathon. Kipchoge was different even from these other greatest of the great runners who they who they brought out and the you know the obvious or not the obvious but uh, a very tempting explanation is that he has he is a master of uh, of the mental side of the sport do you think that's something that the everyday athlete can kind of build on and, and take take that message away and should we be incorporating brain training into into our marathon plans for example is that something that actually we tend to neglect we focus on building our muscles, hitting the gym, doing our interval sessions. But do you think actually there's evidence to support the role of brain training or focusing on our mindset before a race? So it's that's a complicated question um, because I, there's, I have a lot of different answers to that. The top level answer is that, yes, I think I think mindset sort of as a broad uh, broad term for what we're talking about, I think it absolutely can be improved. And I think, or, or maybe more more to the point, I think some people, including me in my younger days, get it really wrong, <laughs> you know, are full of self-doubt instead of, uh, instead of confidence and that, and that acts in real and quantifiable ways to, to, to harm our performance. Now, 
how much priority should we give to that? Like who, who would you put your money on the, 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 the runner who did a hundred miles a week for, for 16 weeks preparing for the marathon and didn't worry about mindset or the runner who, who meditated for, for six hours a day and has extreme confidence, but it was only running 10 miles a week. Like mindset only takes you so far. Mindset is what you do after you've taken care of the, if not after, uh, only it only becomes relevant if you're also taking care of the physical side of training. Um, so I think there's a we have to maintain a sense of proportionality uh, of and, and who knows what the exact proportions are and it depends from pers- varies from person to person. But it's we're talking about the icing on the cake, not the cake itself. And you, you use the term brain training, so I'll just say one of the things I wrote about in the book is an idea called brain endurance training, which is uh, an idea developed by a guy named Samuel Marcora, who uh, used to be at the University of Kent. Now he's at the University of Bologna. And it's based on this idea that the fundamental challenge in endurance sports is resisting fatigue, resisting the urge to slow down and and, and being able to maintain focus in the face of the mounting desire to, to stop. So what Marcora and his colleagues did is develop a, a protocol, a computer-based protocol to basically, it's the analog of making yourself physically tired to build your physical endurance. If you make yourself mentally fatigued, your brain should adapt to resist mental fatigue. And so you sit at a computer for, let's say, an hour a day, tapping away at, um, you know, it's it's some sort of computer task where you have to hit buttons as quickly as possible in response to what's on the screen. It's very mentally tiring, very, very boring, to be honest. And if you do that over the course of weeks, you enhance your mental fatigue. And they've shown in some small studies that it seems to enhance physical performance independent of what's of what of what you're doing in terms of physical training. So there is an argument that this sort of actual formal brain training, not just sort of telling yourself you can do it, Alex, but actually computer-based brain training can enhance performance. What I would say is that I would don't think that is probably useful uh, for most people, both because it's you know the, the the marginal gains are very small compared to the gains you would get from running for the, <laughs> an extra hour a day, and because it's extremely boring and unpleasant. And because so, if if you're not training as hard as you can, you should just do more physical training. If you are training as hard as you can, then maybe there's room to add some some brain training. But you have to be awfully careful because brain training doesn't have zero cost. So we were talking earlier about you know the the total load, total stress load, and recovering from hard training. If you're training super hard, adding an hour of mentally demanding training in front of a computer each day is going to affect your ability to recover from the physical training you're already doing. So I think the the cost benefit analysis to computer based brain, brain training is tricky, and there may be, there are some protocols that try and make it a little more tolerable so that you do some brain training during your physical training, or you're doing let's say a circuits session in the gym and in your recovery, instead of just standing there with your hands on your knees, you rush over to a, an iPad and do some some brain training exercises. So there may be some room for that, but I would say that that is not something that I would say everyone should rush out and try. But if you, if, if you define brain training in a broader way to say, include things like working on motivational self-talk, then yeah, I think that's something that is worthwhile to do, can, ha- can lead to improvement and doesn't require this sort of five hours a week of mind-numbing boredom to to incorporate into your schedule. Yeah, I'd agree. And realistically, most of us don't have that extra time that's going to take away the enjoyment that we that we do have from running. 
In terms of brain, just one last kind of question around that. There is evidence, isn't there, to support the fact that our brain brain holds kind of our physiological limit to some extent. So our brain is what's going to control our muscles. We might feel muscle fatigue, but actually some of that will be coming from our brain rather than just from our muscles themselves. Is that right? Is that the, the concept of the central governor theory that you touched on in your book? Yeah. So the central governor, it, it became a very controversial topic in exercise science. It became kind of politicized and the subject of a lot of squabbling among researchers. And and what people mean by when they say the central governor has has evolved a lot and people argue over different definitions. So I guess what I would say is the original concept of the central governor was that, yeah, you never reach the point where your muscles literally can't go another step. Your brain steps in before that point and for its own preservation says, nope, we're not going to go all the way to our limits. The next question is, okay, that's a, that's a, a concept that I think is true. How do you, but if you, if you want to get specific and say, okay, well, well, how is the brain doing that? Then that's where the argument started. And is it as you get tired, your your brain automatically, is there one part of the brain that is turning down the signals to your, the nerve signals to your muscles so that you can't recruit your, your muscles to keep going, even though you try. And there were, there were a bunch of theories along those lines, which I don't think have really been borne out, although it's still debated. So what I would say now is the terminology central governor is, is kind of, it's actually, you don't see it much and it's researchers in the field have moved away from it. But the idea that you don't reach your limits, you don't reach your actual physical limits, I think is a, is a, a true one. And, and I guess in my book, I tried to look at a whole bunch of different situations where you might reach your limits. So do you, do you reach your limits when you run out of oxygen? Do you reach your limits when you run out of fluids? Do you reach it when you run when you reach extremes of pain? Do you reach it when you when your muscles are all recruit muscle fibers are 100% recruited or you know when you overheat? All these situations which could conceivably lead to genuine physical like that's it. I can't I cannot do any more. And the overall theme I would say is that in most cases when you feel like you can't go any farther it's a feeling. And in fact, the way some researchers would now describe it, it's, it is the, the, the sense of effort. You're, you're, you're feeling that it's hard. That is the actual master key. And that feeling, of course, depends on all the physiological stuff. It, it, it feels like you can't go because your oxygen levels are low or you're, you know, you're, you're, cause your, your core is overheating. But that feeling can also be affected by, by psychological elements, by by what the, the thoughts going through your head, for example, and so what it means is the feeling is never quite. It's it's not like an absolute. You can no, you can't go any farther than this point. It's it's affected by the context and how motivated you are and how you're feeling. So overall, what it looks like is this original idea of a central governor that basically what feels like a brick wall usually isn't truly a brick wall, and and what we're finding out when we go race. Uh, an endurance race is how close we can come to that wall on any given day. And I suppose in a way that must be a protective mechanism because obviously we don't actually want to be reaching our limit. Presumably that could be quite dangerous. So I guess our brain is is kind of working to protect ourselves to, to, to make yeah. sure we don't get to that point where we've got no oxygen left and our muscles literally can't move us any further. Yeah. And it's it, it's it's doing that based on learned experience over the course of time you know, you, you misjudge the pace, you, you, you run too fast too early and you crash or you, or you don't run fast enough and you have lots of sprint left at the, at the finish. So you're gradually refining your sense of where is the outer limits of what I'm capable of. And it, the brain doesn't always get that right. And the, one of the, the situations where, you, cause you might start to think, well, then I'm invincible. I can, I can go as hard as I want and I'll never be able to hurt myself because, um, my central governor will protect me. What one, one situation where the brain seems to get it wrong is in heat. 
in in very hot conditions during prolonged endurance events and you know we've all seen images of highly motivated athletes trying to make it to the finish line of a marathon or of a triathlon in hot conditions and they're you know they're staggering around they they can't stand up straight and they're walking off sideways or crawling and things like that and that's that's a function of heat stroke and and that's the central governor hasn't worked in it and and their their core they've i mean heat stroke is a fairly complicated condition but ultimately some cascade of inflammatory events has taken over such that their core temperature is rising to the point that they'll die if they don't get cooled down and so Obviously, the central governor didn't help them. They they have reached a physical limit, and and the, you know there's no like motivational words that will get them to the finish line. They've they've passed that point. But for the most part, our brains do pretty well. You could make the argument that the central governor is varies from person to person. Some people are able to push themselves really close to the edge on a regular basis. Uh, some of us uh, are, have a little more inborn caution in our central governors, and I would say. That goes back to what I was saying earlier on about the difference between racing at 46 and racing at 22 is I feel like my central, the settings on my central governor have been adjusted such that I, I can't really stare into the abyss as well as I used to be able to. I think that's reflected in some of the risk profiles, isn't it, for medical conditions at events. It's often the elite athletes or the most motivated of athletes that are higher risk for you know a wide range of conditions. And it's because they somehow are able to push themselves that extra bit further, which might benefit them in terms of performance, but often in health can can increase their risk of certain things. Absolutely. And of course, the elite athletes, if you think of the human body as kind of a furnace generating heat as a, or as an engine with 75% of the useful energy being turned into heat, the elite athletes can have their furnaces turned or their engines running at a very, very high wattage or horsepower. So they're generating a ton of heat too, so they can get themselves in trouble in, in, in that way. And I just wanted to ask you um, as well about the metrics that we can measure. So we might not be able to measure our psychological components that, that lead to our training, but we all, or most of us have um, fancy watches now that give us a whole load of data. And I was just hoping to get your opinion on how useful that data is and what you think actually the most important things to focus on are when we're thinking about our performance and, and general health as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the point you made right at the start there about, well, we can't measure psychological components. There's lots of things we can't measure, but we can measure these things. And of course, I, I can't remember the name of the, the fallacy, but there's a classical fallacy of of paying attention to, the th- of, of assuming that the things we can measure must be the important things, and then anything you can't measure it must therefore be unimportant. I think we, we all fall into that a little bit. I, I come from a specific place in my own uh, relationship with data and running. I, I run with a a Timex watch, no GPS, no nothing. Not because I don't think any of that data is useful, but because I, I've learned about I, I, the opposite in a sense, because I love pouring over data. And and for me, the risk then becomes um, becoming obsessive about the, the the fire hose of data that I'm getting and, start, and, and every run being a uh, you know, am I going to maintain the average pace that I wanted to do? And am I, am I going to, you know, my is my cadence going to be right? And am I, you know, all these infinite other streams of data that we can worry about. And so for me, where I'm at right now, I use very little data. Like I have a stopwatch and I know roughly the length of my roots. Now to optimize performance, what is it worth paying attention to? There are times in your training when it's good to know how fast you're running. Now, whether you do that by running at a track with a stopwatch or whether you do that by running along a path with a, a GPS watch, I mean, there's there's different ways of doing it. And so one way or another, you sometimes have to be to hold yourself accountable. I'm speaking about running here. I mean, it applies to other sports too, but as a runner, I'll just speak in the, in, in the context of running. Um, so absolutely some some sort of pace or effort data. Some people use power meters even for running. And those those are those are all serving the same purpose as a reality check to say, 
I feel like I'm going this hard. How, how does that correspond to reality? Am I actually going slower than I than I did last week? And I just feel like it's worse. And you need you need or feel like it's faster. You need you need to know how fast you're moving uh, in order to plan workouts appropriately. So from there, I guess the next most obvious one is heart rate. I, I tend to be skeptical of of the need for heart rate training, at least on a daily basis. Now I think it can be useful depending on who, who and why. I mean. There are definitely runners who run their easy days who, who are just inclined. They, li- they like to run their easy days really hard. And so for them, for example, having a heart rate monitor on could be a good way of, of saying, don't get above this threshold today. You know, today is, it is not, so it's not so much about you need to stay in this magic zone because that's what makes you faster. It's, it's more about, look, if you, if you run, if you spend your whole easy run at 160 beats per minute, you're going to have a crap workout tomorrow. Um, and, and, and tomorrow you need to have, uh, be able to go hard and conversely, other people might use the heart rate to go hard enough. I, I used to use it for tempo runs. That was one workout I would do weekly where I would be off and running exactly the same route at exactly the same goal intensity, the sort of, you know, comfortably hard kind of pace. And so I would sometimes use the the heart rate just to kind of help me dial in. This is the effort I should be at, but more often I would use it as a diagnostic Rather, so rather than using the, the data to prescribe what I should be doing, I'd use it to diagnose or analyze what I had done. So I would go out and run a tempo at what I thought was an appropriate tempo pace. And it might be, you know, the same tempo route that I, t- same tempo run route that I ran most weeks. And then I could say, well, today my average heart rate was 157 and I ran that, you know, five mile route in such and such a time. In comparison, this is a little bit slower than I usually run it. And my heart rate was a little bit higher. And that tells me that I'm not recovering or that I'm, I've, I have some accumulative fatigue or, 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 or something, or, or that conversely, it might tell me that I'm getting fitter. I guess <laughs> to avoid giving a sort of 45 minute answer to, to this question, I guess what I would say is I tend to favor the diagnostic approach to, to data, to take some data and use it to understand what's happening while you train. I'm more skeptical of the prescriptive approach of go out and I'm going to run a workout at such and such a heart heartbeat or such and such a you know lactate level or continuous glucose level or whatever the the, the million other things that that people can can take data of different people have different relationships with data and so I guess the the the, the sort of thing I would be cautious of is assuming that you have to take a certain amount of data or that there's a guaranteed benefit to you know, tracking all, all your biomechanical parameters or something. For most of these things, the, the evidence that you can make changes on the basis of data is 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 weak at best. So you just want to use it to kind of try and under, understand how your training is progressing relative to your own baseline, relative to what, what, you know, if you see changes in your data compared to what you were doing last month or three months ago, that's far more meaningful than thinking that you should be training at a certain intensity or or, or anything like that. And I think there's been a lot more emphasis on recovery and analyzing recovery and using that in training. Whereas I think, you know, going back a few years, it was very much we're focusing on the training element and maybe not so much the recovery. And with the uh, use of WHOOP and the availability of devices like that, that kind of give you predictions about how well you've recovered so that you can adjust your training. There's been a lot of uh, interest in heart rate variability and recovery. So I was just wondering if I could get your opinion on that and how useful that measure is. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think heart rate variability is real. Like I think it it contains real information about how your body is responding to to training and to the and to the stresses of life. Whether it contains information that allows you to make better decisions than waking up in the morning and saying, "Do I feel like crap or do I feel great?" 
is not is not clear to me because there's so much day-to-day variability in in heart rate variability. So the people who I respect who are advocates of heart rate variability uh, tend to talk in terms of like look at your 30-day average or your you know your 7-day average and your 60-day average and look and don't look at any single day but look at you know a 3-day trend. So like if your data has been trending if your heart rate variability has been trending downwards for 3 days and it's lower than your 7-day and 60-day average that's probably telling you that yeah you're not recovering. Now, what I haven't seen and and there's been a few very small studies suggesting that oh yeah if you if you guide your training if you wake up in the morning and let your heart rate variability or your recovery you know one of these black box proprietary recovery scores like whoop um if you let it tell you whether to train then maybe that will you'll get better training outcomes in, in the long term but most of these studies set up an artificial comparison it's like okay you can either you you train using heart rate variability or you train following the schedule that someone wrote out on a piece of paper for two months in advance, and that's not a that's not a smart way to train. Of you, you absolutely need to be adaptable in your training and, and pay attention to to how you know to how whether you're recovering and how your body's responding to the training. So the stu- the sort of future study that I would be interested in seeing is show me a, show me a study in which people get better training or, or, or performance outcomes by basing decisions in part on a recovery score compared to just being smart humans and and adjusting based on how they're feeling and conversations with their coaches. Now, the, in, in reality, even that's a sort of false dichotomy. And maybe, maybe where we're going to end up is heart rate variability is something you look at in the morning and you combine that with like, how did my run go yesterday? How do I feel today? Is my throat a little scratchy? Is that, is that just dry air or am I sick? And if you've got it, you've, you know, we've all got a bunch of different signs that we already pay attention to and, and sort of integrate into our decision-making process. Did I get a crappy sleep last night? I don't need a sleep monitor to tell me if I was awake for three hours last night or whatever. And so maybe heart rate variability or some sort of recovery score adds some value to that. Not that you would always train hard when the heart rate variability says you can and never train hard when it says you can't, but that it might tip the balance or help confirm this sort of feeling you've got that ah, I'm not feeling great and the heart rate variability is flashing red, so maybe I'll ease off today. So anyway, I I, I think I think it's real physiologically, but I just I, I'm I'm not convinced that it does that, that it tells you something you can't know if you just ask yourself. Yeah, so it should be a piece of the puzzle rather than the entire puzzle. Um, I I personally don't use these things, and I think for me, if I had a device telling me that I was tired or overtrained and under recovered. No matter how I was feeling, I know psychologically I would start feeling that way. I'd feel tired and feel like if I headed out for my run, I'd be, you know, <laughs> feeling the pain a bit that's, more. That's, that's so a great I, point. I suppose it's it's kind of an, an individual thing and maybe something we should take note of how our body feels and then look at our data rather than the other way around as well. Yeah, I, I, t- I totally agree. I mean, it does become a self-fulfilling prophecy and, uh, you know, it can work the other way. It could be like, Hey, if I look at my phone and it tells me you feel like a million bucks, maybe I'm going to go. So maybe the algorithm needs to understand when you're racing and always tell you that you feel great on the day of your race, and then it will help you uh, perform at your best. But the the last thing you want on the day of a race is to wake up and see your phone telling you, you know what, you feel like crap today. (laughs) Absolutely. That comes back to the mind training, doesn't it? We need to be mentally prepared. Data might not be the answer to that one. Um, another popular training principle that I just wanted to touch on was polarized training. And so correct me if this, if I'm wrong, but I believe it's when you train at very high intensities or very low intensities and you miss out 
those um, middle intensity sessions. So for running, it might be that you do your long endurance efforts at a really slow chatty pace, and then you might do your high intensity um, interval sessions, but you're missing out those tempo runs, which I know you've, you've mentioned that, that you used to do quite a lot of, and it's something that I do quite a lot of as well. So what are your thoughts on polarized training and does the research support that this is a useful mechanism of training to, to prepare you and improve your performance? Yeah, it's interesting. There was a an academic debate in the journal Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise just quite recently in the last month or two that was like, is polarized training, you know, the the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world? Uh, and it pitted a you know a few different group, a couple of groups of scientists against each other. And I think that the the fundamental issue in the debate was actually the definition of polarized training. So I think its value depends in part on how you're how you're defining it. And so the traditional understanding is exactly what you've said, that you you um, you do a lot of very easy training, a relatively small amount of very hard training, and not much in the middle. And, and the way it's often characterized is this kind of an 80-20 breakdown. You're doing 80% of your training nice and easy, 20% of your training super hard, and, and nothing in the middle. And if in terms of evidence to support that, so to support the idea that you shouldn't do tempo runs. I think there's very little evidence, uh, and and it's depending on how you in- interpret it. Um, and often, I think what it comes down to is actually how you classify, how you break down the training sessions. Are you breaking it down by the number of minutes in a certain heart rate zone or the number of miles at a given pace? Or is it like, when I do one 20-mile run slow, that's a, that's one session. And when I do one interval session, which includes three miles slow jogging and then some sprinting and then a couple miles of slow jogging again, I classify that as high intensity. That's where that sort of the differences in how you uh, count what's easy and what's hard, I think are are often what give rise to this idea that nobody does tempo running because in fact, people do spend a lot of time in that intermediate zone, but it's maybe it's not always in the form of just like a whole session of tempo running. Um, So, okay. So let me organize my thoughts here. The idea that you shouldn't do anything in the middle, I don't think is well supported. Now, a lot of times when people talk about polarized training these days, what they really mean is this 80-20 idea that you should be doing a ton, most of your training should be really easy, not tempo, but easy. Now that 20% that's harder, some of it might be tempo runs, some of it might be sprints. It'll depend on the event and the sport, but that's that's different. So it's not about avoiding a given zone. It's just more that you should build, that, that, that you should build a huge base of the, the easy stuff. And that's strictly speaking, what you would call that is not a polarized distribution, but a pyramidal distribution, or at least one version of it would be a pyramidal distribution, which is a big base, 80% super easy running, and then a smaller, or let's say 70% super easy, 20% in the middle zone and 10% in in the hardest zone. So rather than avoiding the middle, it's just de-emphasized compared to the easy stuff. And I think there is evidence for that, although not... I mean, there's a few studies where they they randomly assign people to different kinds of training and they seem to do better on the polarized style training or at least the 80-20 style training. But most of the evidence is just like, hey, let's look at the, you know, all the greatest athletes across endurance sports for the last 40 years. And there's a very consistent pattern that most, but not all, tend to do this huge base of of easy running. So so yes to polarized training not as a sort of scientific proof but empirically as what great athletes do for the most part but but only in the sense of like do a lot of easy running as opposed to avoid the tempo run 
And then the you know one of their new ones, which maybe you were just about, uh, going to get to, is 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 like there's a difference between being a, a miler or 1500 meter runner and a marathoner. A miler is uh, is going to be running. Of course, they're going to do a bunch of really fast running because their race pace is really fast, and they're less interested in the tempo run. A marathoner, their race pace is actually not all that far from the the tempo pace. So there's a lot more specificity specificity in terms of the benefits of doing uh, that, that middle range, if, if your race pace is in that middle range. So, um, so there's maybe no universal answer for, uh, for, for all athletes across all sports. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you touched up on that difference because I feel like if I was marathon training and doing very high intensity speed work and then my long slow runs, there'd be quite a lot of anxiety come race day to know that you can put that together um, and maintain a, a faster pace as your race pace for longer periods of time. So I think it comes down to, to what distance you're doing for sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, in this debate that I mentioned, uh, about polarized training, one of the scientists was Andy Jones from the university of Exeter, who spent a lot of time working with Paula Radcliffe during her career. And so he was taking the side that polarized training is, is not this sort of magical formula because in his experience with Paula Radcliffe, I mean, f- um, for many reasons, presumably, but among them was that in his experience with Paula Radcliffe, who, you know, was obviously a very successful marathoner, she ran a ton of her training even on her easy days she she was not out sort of shuffling around with her friends she, she ran a, a lot of a lot in that zone that would be considered the forbidden zone in a strict definition of polarized training so yeah there's there's a i think many marathoners would would have trouble believing that you really shouldn't run anything around marathon pace that that doesn't seem quite quite uh, logical Definitely. So through all your years of doing this research and everything we've kind of touched on today, I'm just interested to know what research has actually affected how you've trained. If you went back to when you were 21, let's say, um, when we were talking right at the beginning, is there anything that you would have changed? Or is there anything that you do now very differently because of all the research you've been doing? Yeah. I mean, the, the funny thing is, I, I would say, if anything, spending you know a decade plus really digging into all the possible ways of refining your training or the technologies and the supplements and the nutritional regimes. My sort of conclusion at the end of that is that I I am way less stressed about that stuff than I used to. Because I just, you know, you look at enough studies and you're like, this stuff really doesn't matter very much. It's just that, you know, it's just a noise. There's mostly noise and not a whole lot of signal in terms of like, oh, I can remember, in, you know, tr- training with people where we, you know, there'd be a lot of drama about, you know, if, if the coach hadn't specified the workout, there'd be, you know, we were trying to agree on what to do. It's like, well, should we do this many thousand meter reps with two minutes rest or should we do two and a half minutes rest? Or should we be really be doing 1200 meter reps and how many should we, should we do eight or should we do seven? And, and I look back on that. It's like, it doesn't matter. Like two and a half minutes rest, two minutes rest, whatever. If it's two and a half minutes rest, you run a little faster. If it's two minutes rest, you run a little slower. Ultimately, the goal is to reach a certain level of tiredness. And, and you can get that stimulus out of any number of different workouts within a pretty broad range. Um, and, you know, dietary stuff, it's like eat a healthy, balanced diet. There's there's very little magic to worry about. So so overall, I would, I've, I've actually come to a, almost a more sort of impressionistic approach to training that the, the details matter less than we think we do. Now, if there was one thing I was going to, I would change, it would definitely be to, to pay more attention to the the psychological side of sport. Um, when I was in university, we had a sports psychologist working with the team who gave us, uh, you know, a, a, a bunch of sessions on things like, you know, 
negative thought stopping and uh, we didn't take it seriously at all. Not, not, nobody on the team did. We didn't think it mattered. We, it just didn't seem relevant to us. And so in my last sort of five or six years of, of things I've been writing about, I've seen, started to see more and more evidence of like, and that, you know, it's just the way my mind works. I want to see, I'm not interested in what, whether a theory sounds good. I want to know like, did someone test this in the lab? Like what happened? And people have tested ideas like motivational self-talk, which is the idea of taking control of your internal monologue and not allowing yourself to spiral off into negative thoughts, but instead, in, you know, so instead of telling yourself, I can't do this, which is going to sort of feed into this self-fulfilling prophecy that it feels hard and you want to stop telling yourself, I can do this, you know, it, it's hard, but this is what I've trained for. It's It's been shown in some lab studies, it, like it really has powerful effects on on your physical endurance. And so I would, I would tell my 25, 21 year old self that actually this stuff matters. And, and, you know, as, as sort of unsciencey as it sounded to me at the time, I, I wish I had paid more attention to it and, and, uh, worked with people who knew more than I did to try and get my mindset in a better place before, before races. I think we've all definitely experienced that, haven't we? Most of us that have raced and whether we've hit a wall or just kind of started and not not felt it, I think we can all resonate with, with the idea that our mind has a lot more control than we'd maybe like to admit about our performance and how we're going to do on the day. I mean, it's it, and you, you can see it sometimes in very direct ways. It's like you're feeling like you can't go any faster. You can barely walk and then you turn a corner and see the finish line or you see your friends or whatever. And, and all of a sudden you're, you're sprinting to the finish line. It's like, well, hang on. If I'm sprinting to the finish line, why was I like crawling in the desert, you know, five minutes ago? Uh, clearly there was more in there. It's just that it was, it was the way my mind was, was conceiving of the challenge. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. That's been so interesting. Um, any final comments? And also, would you mind just directing people to your social media uh, and also letting them know about your newsletter? Because that's definitely something that I look forward to in my inbox. Oh, sure. Thanks. Yeah. I think the easiest place to find me is probably... Uh, on Twitter, my handle is sweat science, all one word. And whenever I write a new article, which is usually at least once a week, um, I post it there. I do have an, uh, a website, alexhutchinson.net. And like you said, I have a an email newsletter. I think it goes out roughly once a month, which is basically just a summary of anything interesting I've noticed in the previous month and, and a link to every article I've written in the previous month, So, which will be usually a series of links about new studies on the science of endurance and fitness. And uh, to be honest, I, I can't remember what the link is to sign up, but I, at the bottom of every article I, I write for Outside Magazine, um, I have a link to that newsletter. So if you, if you find me on Twitter, you can click on a link to an Outside article, and there will be a, a, a newsletter link at the bottom of the article. But thank you for, uh, for asking about that. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Many thanks to Alex for joining me on this episode. If you want to hear more from Alex, then you can find him on Twitter using the handle Sweat Science, and you can also visit outsideonline.com to read his Sweat Science articles. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, then please do share it and give it a rating, and do get in touch if there's topics or guests that you'd like to see on a future episode. To hear more from me, then you can head to marathonmedic.com, where you'll find more podcast episodes, blog posts, and tips for getting more active. You can also find me on Instagram by searching Marathon Medic. Thanks so much for listening. 